Welcome to Red Enlightenment, a podcast on socialism, science and spirituality. In today's episode on socialism, I'll first set out my broad understanding of capitalism before exploring the moments of contact between Marxist historical materialism and the notions of process metaphysics and complexity theory that we've explored previously. I hope you enjoy the episode. After decades at the margins, socialism has returned to public consciousness. Since the crash of 2008 and the lack of any systemic response, let alone to the problem of the climate crisis, public opinion has polarised away from the centre ground towards the right and left. From electoral campaigns led by self-proclaimed socialists to the rapid growth of socialist organisations, and as Keir Milburn has described it, a generation-left youth demographic which tends more strongly towards anti-capitalist and social justice views than in previous eras. But whilst the re-emergence of socialism as a movement is clear, how the term is understood by socialists is a little more complex. Like all significant political concepts, socialism has a number of different sides and interpretations, as well as historical changes in its usage. Though today socialism and communism are often given distinct meanings, for Marx and Engels they appear to have been interchangeable. Socialism today is taken both as a vision of an alternative system to capitalism and a movement trying to bring about that vision. The particulars of that vision and the strategy for bringing it about can vary quite significantly, but central to all of them is a critique of the present capitalist system. So in order to show how I am linking socialism, science and spirituality, the theme of this podcast, I now have to set out what I understand by the capitalist system. Despite the centrality of the notion of capitalism for the left, it's actually quite rare to read a succinct yet satisfying description of what it actually is. Marx never really gave a single sentence definition, and you'll struggle to find any short statement of his in the vein of capitalism is X. Instead, in Capital, he worked his way methodically through all the various aspects of the capitalist system in detail. There are, of course, good reasons for that. Pithy definitions can often reduce and distort the object of study, but long-winded presentations, on the other hand, struggle to function as an educational tool. In his book Envisioning Real Utopias, Eric Olin Wright sets out what I have found to be a useful, brief definition of capitalism that doesn't destroy too much of its complexity. He identifies four key aspects of capitalism. It firstly involves class relations that are defined by private ownership and propertyless workers. That is, a certain class of people own the means through which we produce things, and another class own nothing but their ability to work. The latter group, the working class or proletariat, is then forced to sell their labour in order to survive. These class relations sit alongside a form of economic coordination organised through decentralised market exchanges. This is what we hear called the free market, as opposed to the state coordinating economic activity or through some sort of free exchange, as when someone gives free childcare to friends or family. Together, the combination of these class relations and economic coordination generates the drive for capital accumulation. In other words, the endless quest for more profit and the production of economic growth. Those four aspects of capitalism then are private ownership, propertyless workers, market coordination and accumulation. Contrary to the common imaginary of capitalism as natural or inevitable to human society, all of these properties are historically produced. The creation of propertyless workers, or proletarianization, involves a class of people being removed from their ability to self-sustain, such as they might have done through growing their own food and living on common land. 
they are instead forced to go to markets and pay landlords for the means to live, which requires them to make money through employment. The classic example in the history of capitalism is the English enclosure of the commons beginning in the early 1600s, where, through a series of acts of parliament, land that was previously available for common usage, and which the peasantry farmed in order to sustain themselves, was handed over to private owners. This forced people off the land and into the cities, becoming the basis of the industrial working class. The same was at the root of colonialism, uprooting people from traditional self-sustaining ways of life in order to turn them into consumers and producers, including, of course, as slaves. This is not just a historical process, however, but is ongoing, with the neoliberal privatisation of public assets being a continuation of this dynamic. David Harvey names it accumulation by dispossession, an extension of what Marx had called primitive accumulation. The creation and maintenance of private property is therefore predicated on some system of power, usually the state, which has the means to take and hold that land. It involves not just physical violence, but systems of legal mechanisms for administering those now created rights to private property, including the right to extract rent from tenants and labour from a workforce. On market relations, it is true that goods have been exchanged on markets for thousands of years. Earlier systems of accountancy found in ancient states like in Mesopotamia later developed into fixed coinage used for commercial transactions, usually claimed to have begun in Greece around 600 BCE. But banking and finance as we understand it today has a much later origin. In The Emergence of Organisations and Markets, Paget and Powell identify key organisational inventions in the history of early financial capitalism, such as the medieval corporation in 13th century Tuscany, the partnership system in 14th century Florence, and the joint stock company in 17th century Netherlands. Even aside from these later developments, capitalist markets differ from ancient markets firstly in how they are totalising, that is, everything comes to be a marketable good, from labour to most of our food, water, sometimes even clean air being given a market price. And they differ in that goods are not merely traded, but are produced purely to be traded. In ancient states, the production, storage and distribution of agricultural surplus was a key source of power, which served first and foremost as a means of sustaining the populace. Under capitalism, the primary purpose of making products is their sale, without any consideration for whether citizens are properly fed, clothed or housed beforehand. And whilst that stockpiling may sound like accumulation, and certainly all states have accumulated wealth and power, again this differs under capitalism. Specifically, it is the tight, cyclical nature of capital accumulation that differs. Goods made specifically for sale are exchanged for money, and then that money becomes invested back into the production process in order to expand it. That expanded production can make more goods to make more money, which once again feeds back into expanding the production process ad infinitum. Capital accumulation is then fundamentally amplifying, or some might say accelerationist. The very core dynamic of capitalism is unending growth, and it is therefore something that cannot be regulated out of existence without leaving capitalism itself. And as this unending process constantly requires the extraction of new raw materials and an output of pollution, it leads to ever-expanding environmental destruction. This is what Marx called the metabolic rift between human life and the rest of nature that is created by capitalism. He didn't have the language or scientific knowledge we have today around man-made or anthropogenic climate change, but he pointed in precisely that direction. So whilst all the elements that comprise capitalism have some deeper history, it is only when they come to relate in a certain arrangement and form a consistent system which dominates other arrangements that capitalism can be said to emerge. 
This could be seen as a kind of evolutionary exaptation, as we touched on in the previous episode, where previously non-capitalist forms, such as the family, are later appropriated as a part of a new system and transformed in the process. In this example, into the specific form of the nuclear family, with its role of supporting an industrial working husband and the production of a new generation of workers. And not only are these four aspects of capitalism historically produced, they each produce suffering. Accumulation produces environmental destruction and the risk of extinction-level climate change. Market dominance turns all human life into a commodity and tears up any other system of meaning and purpose we might try to construct. And the class processes of proletarianization and private ownership produce suffering through exploitation and alienation and the limiting of human freedom. This provides only the broadest outlines of an understanding of capitalism. We can uncover more of its detail by exploring the specific concepts used in Marxist historical materialism. However, rather than merely setting out a traditional Marxist understanding of capitalism, I want to bring together some of the ideas that have been built up in previous episodes. Taking the notions of process metaphysics and complex systems we've explored, I'll look for moments in Marxist theory where they cross over. And in doing so, I'll be keeping in mind the categories we established as central to spirituality, metaphysics, ethics, and embodiment. My purpose here is not to argue for Marxism as a spirituality in itself, as Luna Charsky did. Instead, I want to try and identify a metaphysical system that can encompass a socialist critique of capitalism, whilst also being applicable outside of such a critical mode. To use this same process philosophy to understand, for example, love and friendship, death and illness, or the appreciation of art and nature, without reducing these to merely being the effects of capitalism. The purpose of beginning with science and socialism is to ensure their compatibility, so that this is not spirituality as self-help that runs from social critique or intellectual clarity, but one that can move in and out of different modes of thought. Spiritual, critical, artistic, interpersonal, or strategic. We will begin painting with this broader spiritual palette from the next episode onwards, but firstly we need to establish that this complex systems approach can indeed marry up with the Marxist conceptual toolbox. We cannot see capitalism. It might seem strange to say that when the evidence is all around us, but all that we see are systemic effects. We never see the whole or its mechanisms. We see a person living in poverty or we experience it ourselves. We can likewise see individuals with enormous wealth or see the production of goods in factories and so on. But capitalism is not just that poverty, that wealth, those individuals, those buildings or anything else. It is the total system of forces which produce those effects. No empirical observation will ever make a force visible in itself. It will only ever produce effects through which we can try to understand that force. The Marxist depiction of capitalism is a model for explaining and predicting those real forces. The concepts which make up this overall model are not metaphysical in themselves. Most of what Marx sets out in Capital is specific to the capitalist system, not all of history or reality as a whole. But speaking of the capitalist system, as opposed to a socialist system, necessarily implies some overarching notion of system. That is, every particular systems theory, if it is coherent, implies a general systems theory. Marx never set out such a general systems theory, unlike Bogdanov, but I would argue that the contours of a systems theory can be extracted from core Marxist concepts and the metaphysics they point towards. 
What follows is not, however, what I think Marx would have said. It is my own intervention, and indeed draws on thinkers beyond Marx, combining these with the scientific and philosophical perspectives explored in previous episodes. One thing that sets apart a general systems theory from a particular systems theory, like Marx's account of capitalism, is that generic unit of analysis, a system. Whether it's Bogdanov's tectology, cybernetics, autopoiesis, or complex adaptive systems theory, a unit like system or complex takes on the role of an abstract model that is applied to different domains and spatial and temporal scales. At its most general, a system is an organised whole made out of parts, as it was in the original Greek term systema. This is used not just for technological or mechanical systems, but for anything with interrelated parts, from computers to ant colonies to the human body, or even a seemingly static object like a rock, which can be considered a system at thermodynamic equilibrium, that is, it's extremely stable. A simple system may have only one or two different types of parts in one or two types of relations, leading to a limited number of output states, as in a set of traffic lights or a thermostat. But in a complex system, there are many different parts involved in many different relations, leading to a huge variety of output states, such as the complex interlinking of skeletomuscular, respiratory, digestive, nervous and other systems within the human body that allows us to do the huge variety of things the human body can do. And those parts which make up a system can themselves be seen as systems, such as how a social system is made of humans, and humans are made of the digestive and other systems, and those are themselves made up of specific organs, which are made of cells, and so on. There is therefore a kind of multi-scalar interrelation of systems, each system emerging out of its lower or substrate systems, whilst also playing back down upon those lower systems. Consider how you require your heart to live, but it is your whole body that moves that heart through the world, and acquires the energetic materials to keep it working. Those two different scales, and the higher scale of society, are all interacting. Marx does not appear to use the term system in this multivalent sense, and most instances of system in capital refer to social systems only. But he does have a rough equivalent, body. He uses this term to refer not merely to the human body, but to systems more widely, and it is applied to numerous scales and domains. In his earlier writing, the organic body of the human is entwined with the inorganic body of the wider world, depicting a kind of extended embodiment that draws the human out into their environment. In the commodities chapter of Capital, Marx refers to commodities in their concrete forms such as coats, iron and sugar as bodies. Later, and most frequently in the machinery and modern industry chapter, he refers to the whole body of capitalists, the body of the factory, the social body of labour, the body of the machine, a body of men, and their union into one single productive body. This latter term in particular is taken up by Gary and Delille in The Productive Body, as part of a threefold distinction of biological, social, and productive bodies within capitalism. Within these broad bodies, various subsystems, such as guilds, are themselves described as bodies. Although Gary and Delille don't draw attention to this in metaphysical terms, the concept of the body is here functioning to draw parallels between nested series of systems, being applied equally to the human body, to schools, prisons and hospitals, and to the broad organising principles of the capitalist system. So rather than thinking in terms of matters that underlie the world, I want to focus on bodies, the organised forms that are the source and recipient of practical activity. Two of the most significant bodies that Marxism deals with are the workers' body and the whole collective body of the working class. 
These are not depicted as static, passive entities, but as active. They have labour power and class power, respectively. Labour power refers to the ability that a worker has to work, which they sell to the capitalist. It is not the actual work done that is bought, what is known as concrete labour, but rather the capacity to work. Class power, on the other hand, refers to the capacity that a class has to actualise its material interests. For workers, that might be higher wages, better working conditions, more control over the production process, and ultimately to be freed from the constrictions of class altogether. This is not just a property of individual workers in aggregate. Rather, it is the development of unions, revolutionary parties, and a broad unified workers' movement that are the prerequisite for class power. That is, power emerges from organisation. Although not using the word power as such, we can see another example in Marx's earlier work. We noted in a previous episode Marx's comment about Aristotle being his favourite of the Greek philosophers, and this is at times apparent in his writing. The notions of potential and actual were central to Aristotle's metaphysics, the idea that, as well as the world as it immediately appears to us, bodies have potentials for change, most famously the acorn that has the potential to become an oak tree. Aaron Jaffe points to how Marx's notion of species being depicted the human as a constrained set of historically developing potentialities. Alienation, for example, shows how, under conditions of capitalism, man is alienated from his most human potentials. In other words, potentials can also fail to actualise. They can be blocked or constrained. Human potential is therefore a social and historical phenomenon, with a determining role for social structures and forces in the shaping of that potential. If we were to develop a general notion of power out of these various concepts, it must account for this distinction between the actual and potential, as well as the notion of powers not being fixed but emerging at a particular point of organisation, and thus allowing for their failure to actualise. In trying to envisage this potentia, I find useful the complexity theory concept of a phase space populated by attractors. A phase space is a visualisation of different states that a system can express, and attractors on that space show the states that it tends to develop towards. Think of a ball on a hilly environment. It is possible for the ball to roll to any part of the landscape if given enough momentum, but it is generally more likely to roll downhill and come to rest in a valley. That is, it is attracted to certain areas on its total phase space. These attractors are the result of a network of external forces, particularly gravity, rather than something purely innate to the ball. And if either the ball or the landscape changes, then the attractors also change. A differently shaped set of hills, a differently weighted ball, or the removal of gravity would change the possibilities and likelihoods of the ball's movement. This abstract notion can be applied to more human bodily concerns, such as in Esther Thalen and Linda Smith's studies of the development of limb control in newborn babies. Thalen and Smith showed that the child begins with a phase space without much specification, that is, with high degrees of freedom. A baby flails equally in all directions. Over time, learning from repeated actions and responses, attractors begin to appear on the space and movements become more precise. A limb will now tend to move to a particular place and stay, enabling the child to grasp and point, to crawl and eventually to walk. These new abilities correspond to a lowering of the degrees of freedom, to constraints on the field of potential. It may sound paradoxical, but it is only through a certain amount of restriction on existing variety, such as in coordination and synchronisation, that powers can emerge and be retained. Likewise, I can become skilled in some discipline, mental or physical, 
by applying my time and effort in a concentrated manner, rather than slipping from one new pursuit to the next without mastering any of them. My choice to exercise an hour every day, or to read a book, or to go on a march, are all constraints on the infinite variety of other things I could be doing. But by doing and actualizing just one, and showing fidelity to it, maintaining a workout routine, finishing a book, holding to political principles, I create determinate powers out of a previously indeterminate field. The same is true of collective political organising. The enabling constraints could involve human bodies being in the same place at the same time, for a meeting or protest, or all agreeing to walk off a job and strike at the same time. The sharing of political principles, an identity, or even a fixed programme or manifesto, is a more distributed set of constraints. This is why the common understanding of freedom as freedom from all constraints is totally antithetical to socialist politics, and arguably to society itself. Total freedom from constraint would disable the emergence of any social organisation whatsoever. Only a solipsist can hold to this notion of freedom whilst enjoying all the fruits of society which contradict it. The roads laid by workers, pubs and restaurants staffed by workers, public parks manicured and maintained by workers. Which is to say, the freedom from constraint of the capitalist flaneur is predicated on the constraint of countless others. Rather than freedom from, we should think of freedom to, or power to, because in a relational world any freedom to does not arise purely within ourselves, but requires environments which enable that freedom. One important distinction in this notion of enabling constraints is the direction that the constraint comes from. Is it imposed from above by a dogmatic leadership who respond to dissent with violence? Or is it a constraint that arises from below or within, consensually, through the desire and discipline of organised people? In terms used repeatedly in this podcast, the latter are immanent constraints. Such constraints could include education, both theoretical and practical, such as understanding the contours of capitalism and the alternatives, and the bodily confidence to take action and join with others. Although the term empowerment can at times have a wishy-washy individualist implication, we can give it a stronger grounding here. Empowerment is the development of powers too of the individual and collective in shaping their social environment and strengthening relative autonomy. In this vein, Eric Olin Wright, in setting out his vision of an emancipatory social science, centres not just freedom from oppression and deprivation, but a more expansive notion of flourishing. We do need, at base, a minimum of material provisions, the absence of hunger and homelessness, of ill health, of physical and emotional abuse. But the ultimate goal is more than just the absence of suffering, it is the expansion of capacities. That we should flourish in how we are able to actualise our potentials physically, socially, artistically and spiritually. In Aristotelian virtue ethics, this flourishing is referred to as eudaimonia, something which a number of scholars have found reflected in Marx's understanding of freedom. The creation of new powers through enabling constraints is also seen in the production of use values through labour. Labour power is applied to raw materials through the use of tools in order to make new objects or other phenomena. This is not a specifically capitalist process, but occurs in all societies, or in all modes of production. New things are produced by human labour acting upon materials using tools. Today, materials like copper, sand and oil are taken from the earth, processed into new materials like fibreglass, which provide the basis for circuit boards, which become part of electronic devices which have powers that the copper, sand and oil alone did not have. Each of those inputs comes with its own histories, which give it its particular structure and capacities. 
the geological history of the raw material, the history of the tools used, both this specific hammer or soldering iron, as well as the history of its abstract form, of the design of hammers and soldering irons in general, and the history of the human worker. Again, this specific human in their life of experiences, the history of the society which has shaped them, and the evolutionary history of their species. These demonstrate different scales of time. There's the phylogenetic history of slow formal evolution, the sociogenetic history of the milieu which shaped it, and the ontogenetic history of an individual body. We might add also the microgenetic scale of moment-to-moment -moment transformations of the specific event of their combination. Time is therefore multiple, both in the sense of multiple intersecting pathways and in having multiple scales developing at different speeds. In the event of production, then, there is a crossing of paths. When this occurs, certain potentials are actualized, others are blocked, and the form of the entities are altered, a slight blunting of the knife and a slicing of the onion. The altered form is a record of that event of transformation and becomes the springboard for a new set of potentials, a finished meal and a knife which no longer cuts. This recording is even more salient in human and social bodies because we record that past in a way we can consciously access, if imperfectly, as memory. And we experience those transformations through feeling, whether short or long-term, positive or negative, from the momentary pleasure of a friendly stranger to life-altering traumatic experiences. The term event, when used by philosophers like Badiou, is typically reserved for catastrophic social changes, in particular a revolutionary rupture. We can see in such events the same actualizing of potentials, in the organization, in its members, in the wider populace and social institutions, followed by a recording in institutional memory, in the organization and direction of the state, and so on. But in what I'm putting forward, what counts as catastrophic is scale relative. The fizzing in my glass of cola does not appear significant from the scale of world history, but on a chemical level it is active and transformative, not merely actualizing a potential but irreversibly changing the potentials of the liquid as a whole. Rather than privileging the event as a special moment, therefore, we can see all of reality as constructed of events on different scales. Those events do come in varying intensity and extension in their effects, sometimes cascading up or down scales. But the distinction is not event versus non-event, but the relative impact and spread of an event. So events involve the relation between different bodies, and relation itself is a significant concept in Marxism. Indeed, Bertel Ullmann argues that Marxist thought as a whole is based on a philosophy of internal relations. We've seen already that the combination of tools and raw materials along with labour power constitutes the forces of production, but this is only half of the picture. We also need to understand the relations of production. This refers to who in the economy owns and controls production, and so can create and sell a variety of commodities, versus those who do not, and so only have their own labour power to sell. Traditionally, these are labelled the bourgeoisie versus the working class. Thus, the relations of production involve class relations. If we're to understand the notion of relation itself, however, taking it beyond these broad social historical terms, we should avoid thinking of relation in a simple on-off, either-or sense. A relation is a causal effect. One thing affects another, and so they have entered into relation, whether through immediate physical contact or a more distributed social or psychological one. Gregory Bateson's definition of information is relevant here, being what he called 
a difference that makes a difference. In other words, for two things to relate, there needs to be some spatial, temporal, conceptual, or other difference between them. And coming together needs to result in something that was not the case prior to their relation. Relations can be unidirectional or multidirectional in their effects. They can be on shorter or longer timescales. They can have various functional impacts, like creating a new body or destroying one, supporting another body in its organisation or defending one's own. And relations can come in patterns and rhythms, being more or less strictly ordered. One-off events like a car crash or a drunken fistfight are relational, just as are relations of ownership and power between capitalists and workers. The former are momentary and contingent, the latter are consistent and ordered. But where there is order, there is always the slippage towards chaos. As with physical matter subject to the second law of thermodynamics, a social patterning will eventually succumb to the tendency towards disorder if it is not adequately reproduced. Friendship groups drift apart without contact, organisations fail without administrators, cities grind to a halt without refuse collection, nurses and transport workers. It is important then that patterning is not envisaged as a rigid grid, but as something constantly in motion, in need of reproduction, and always with the possibility of being blown apart. In line with this more multifaceted view of relations, contemporary understandings of class have complicated the Marxist two-class division. Rather than a singular relation to a singular means of production, there are more complex sets of relations. Gibson, Graham, Resnick and Wolfe identify different types of relation that they name capitalist, feudal, slave, independent and communal, which each differ in their form of production, value appropriation and distribution. The capitalist system is not exclusively made of the capitalist form of relation. That relation merely dominates, with all the others existing in the margins or in a subservient form. For example, the communal family sharing of childcare, the independent relation of the self-employed sole trader, or what they call the feudal relation of the housewife. We should take care, however, not to see complexity at the local scale and presume it at higher scales. The nature of emergence in complex systems allows for instability below to enable stability above, and at the population level we can still see broad divisions of power and wealth that correspond to broad classes. An individual may not stay stably within one class, but the class as a whole remains, like in Hegel's example of a party which remains alive as a whole even as its attendees come and go. We can therefore complexify class whilst retaining the overall thrust of the Marxist critique that capitalism is predicated on disparities of power arising from ownership. This understanding of class is relational, but specifically a relation to the mode of production. Other conceptions of class which many Marxists reject may also be dynamic and relational, but focus instead on, for example, one's cultural class and the dispositions or habitus people acquire as associated with Bourdieu, or with regard to available economic resources, as in Weber. To take myself as an example, throughout most of my adult life I have fallen within the Marxist definition of working class. I needed to work for an employer five days a week to make the money to pay for my rent. But at the same time, I had parents on the other side of the country who were about to finish paying off a mortgage, so would own property which I will eventually inherit part of. This gave me access to resources which provide me with social power and opportunities that other people working the same jobs as me may not have, if nothing else a buffer against homelessness. 
In that sense, I am what many people would think of as middle class. By the Marxist view, I was not, however. Marx's notion of the middle class was synonymous with small business owners who exploited a handful of employees, merchants and manufacturers, what he called small capitalists or the petty bourgeoisie. But still, it would be missing a whole aspect of my social power to not account for the difference that residential property makes. Indeed, Keir Milburn's explanation for the division between increasingly radical youth and conservative pensioners in Britain hinges on the latter's differing class interests issuing from their ownership of residential property. On the flip side, others in a similar relation to the mode of production to me may nonetheless have the embodied habitus of upper-middle-class culture. There can be things like accent, attitude, etiquette or other cultural knowledge, perhaps obtained through attending Oxford or Cambridge universities, which provides them access to social networks and spaces which I and most others haven't had. There is nothing in these additional class factors which need contradict the Marxist view of class. We simply have to understand the Marxist approach in terms of forces which act on populations, and not the final, actualized class of an individual person. There is an interaction of a variety of factors, of which the forces described by Marxism are only a subset. There is still determinism, in that social forces outside the individual shape their being. But where before it was a simple and linear determinism, where one's relation to production equals class, here we see a non-linear determinism, where a variety of forces interact and produce complex, unpredictable outcomes. Class is produced through our relation to production, but also the power of our available resources, like money, property, social networks, and also our bodily adaptation to existing class environments. All of these tend to reinforce one another, but can at times become uncoupled. Think of Alan Sugar, who has retained something of the habitus of his working-class background through his accent and interests, but now has enormous resources and is clearly very much a capitalist in his relation to production. When Marx speaks of abstracts, not mental abstractions, but real abstractions, as Alberto Toscano puts it, I think we can understand these as general patterns of relations and processes divorced from any particular body. Though I won't adopt their terminology, Maturana and Varela distinguish structure and organisation, organisation being the general abstract ordering of the body and structure the specific instantiation. Sort of like how you and I as humans will almost certainly have the same functional bodily organisation, the way the various systems of digestion, respiration, muscles and skeleton are interconnected. But the specific structure of our bodies could be very different. Height, weight, skin colour and so on, each of which is shaped by our specific phylogenetic inheritance from our parents, the sociogenetic influence of our culture, the ontogenetic history of all our life experiences, and the microgenetic differences of what we've recently been doing eating, exercising, sleeping, etc. There is a distinction then between the actual body at any one moment and the abstract body of patterns of tendencies or attractors on our field of potentia. And again, this is relevant to wider political economy. A mode of production like capitalism is an abstract body of a pattern of relations and processes. It is real and yet will actualize differently in different places and times. The modern Indian and British experiences of capitalism, for example, can be quite different because of their cultural and historical contexts, without this negating the reality of capitalism as a system which applies to both. This is what Althusser distinguished as the abstract mode of production from the concrete social formation. So I am taking potentia, process, relation and body 
as my core metaphysical terms for describing reality in general. There are, however, some other concepts worth discussing that only apply to certain types of complex bodies, particularly notions like organism and consciousness. In considering the human body, Marx made a distinction between what he called the organic body and our inorganic body. The organic body is our physical form and internal processes that cohere into a functional whole. Our inorganic body is the world beyond us through which we find our life, through food, water, air and everything else that sustains us. Marx both acknowledges the real physical boundary of the human body, and thus its individuality, and yet also our dependence upon our environments, as in the notion of autopoiesis, or self-reproducing systems, that we've previously explored, our autonomy is only ever relative. An important aspect of autopoiesis, derived from the biosemiotic theory of Jakob Uxkuhl, is the notion that an environment is itself a creation of the body, its Umwelt, or self-centred world. An environment is not merely a neutral space that pre-exists an organism, but rather are those parts of reality which are salient to an organism. That is, it constructs a first-person view. A chemical that sustains or poisons us has immediate relevance to our bodies, and we will likely attach salience to it. But something like infrared radiation, which lies beyond our perception, doesn't enter into our meaningful life world, even if it might impact us in ways we do not realise. Over time, as a body responds to and selects from the particular aspects of the world relevant to it, so it comes to shape that environment in that image, just as that environment continues to shape the evolution of perception. To return to the conversation from last episode, it is not that the mind creates reality in the sense of an illusion, but that the coupling of mind and world shape both over time. Autopoiesis is useful not only for thinking in terms of the human body and its relation to a wider ecology, but also larger scale social bodies like states and markets. Notably, Marx never laid out a detailed analysis of the state, limiting himself to occasional remarks across a variety of texts. This is something that has remained lacking in Marxist theory even up to today, with some exceptions from the middle of the 20th century, such as the debate between Ralph Miliband and Nikos Polantzas. Marx did, however, set out a critique of Hegel's notion of the state. Hegel had conceived of the state as an organism, a self-organising whole of various functions that is internally purposive and in a metabolic relationship with civil society. Though Marx rejected what he saw as the politically conservative implications of Hegel's view of the state in total, he actually accepted this organicist outline. He even hailed it as a great step forward to have seen that the political state is an organism, and that, therefore, its various powers are no longer to be seen as inorganic, but as the product of living, rational divisions of functions. This connection between the state and self-organising organic bodies has re-emerged in more recent state theory. In the work of Bob Jessop in particular, the state is explicitly viewed as an autopoietic system. The state had in some theories been seen merely as a passive instrument to be used by the ruling class, and so was either inherently capitalist, or value neutral and capable of being wielded equally by the workers' movement. Jessop suggested in a development of Polanzas' theory that we should instead approach the state as a relatively autonomous, autopoietic system, with its own end-directed dynamics. The balance of forces between market, state and other political actors like the workers' movement 
becomes reflected in the structure of the state itself, what Palantzas called a crystallization of class struggle. It is neither inherently capitalist nor empty of ideology, but shaped through its history of relations. It cannot simply be captured and taken in whatever direction its leadership desires, but neither is it doomed to always reproduce the capitalist system. Much like a rider mounting a horse, it may try to throw them off and gallop away on its own, or it may have been trained to accept a rider's directions, but in either case it remains an autonomous being with its own internal dynamics and drive to survive. A certain environmental sensing is always present in autopoiesis, and we can see this in the Seeing Like a State set out by James C. Scott. The state sees its environment, reading and categorising its citizens, its territory, its material resources, through processes like taxation, land surveys, the drawing of borders, both physical and administrative, and so on. It reads and then reconfigures the social and physical landscape to better fit these sensory schemas in a constant perception-action loop. The state therefore has an inherent rationalising dynamic, the drive to constantly order, simplify or make legible of its environment, something found equally in early and contemporary states, both capitalist and communist. The imminent end-directedness of autopoietic bodies is also relevant to political organising. While Marxists have been loath to set out utopian blueprints, what Marx derided as recipes for the cookshops of the future, this does not prevent us from creating utopian images which stir our desires and which set the collective body moving in a particular direction. Eric Olin Wright thinks of this in terms of a socialist compass, a means of thinking utopia without rigid blueprints, and instead as an internal dynamic that propels us in a certain direction. Jody Dean takes up the similar notion of the communist horizon. Thinking of horizon, again, avoids the rigidity and finality of blueprints, and implies a bodily direction of travel. A horizon is never reached, but constantly recedes into the distance as we approach it, nor can we clearly see what was on the horizon until it is reached. Both the socialist compass and the communist horizon are aspects of steering the revolutionary movement, steering as in Kaibanan, the root of cybernetics. Despite the role of sensing in autopoiesis, that does not in any way imply consciousness. The human body and that of other vertebrates are extremely complex systems in comparison to most autopoietic bodies, like plants, fungi or bacteria. Whilst the scientific question of the nature and emergence of consciousness is far from settled, with a variety of competing theories, there are some perspectives that may be consistent with the ontology so far set out. Some treat human or human-like consciousness as an emergent property that appears beyond a certain threshold of complexity. Integrated Information Theory, or IIT, takes this view, seeing consciousness as quantifiable in the variety of information that contributes to a single unified experience. Studies of sleep and anaesthesia, where reduced connectivity within the cortex is correlated to loss of consciousness, seem to support this. But it falls down by not considering the importance of embodiment and self-reproduction, leading to some absurd conclusions where inanimate objects can be quantified as equally or even more conscious than humans. Others, like Stanislas Dehaene, identify consciousness as a temporary scaffolding which arises out of mostly chaotic, unconscious fluctuations. Here, disorder, or entropy, is the condition for consciousness, not an inconvenient byproduct. Others still touch upon a Hegelian position, in seeing consciousness emerging out of a complex interweaving of feedback loops with the environment and self. 
Whilst we cannot possibly hope to resolve these debates here, a perspective which incorporates aspects of all of these would fit within the framework I've set out. We could say that consciousness, one, emerges within a dissipative system that reproduces its own structure, two, appears beyond a threshold of complexity in its internal relations, and three, involves multiple feedback loops of sensing, aimed at its external environment, its internal states, and upon that sensing process itself. As with natural science in general, Marx never set out a comprehensive philosophy of mind, and it would be absurd to suggest a theory of consciousness equivalent to these contemporary views was already present in his writing. However, I do think we can identify some broad outlines which are at least consistent with what I'm sketching here. Namely, that consciousness arises from its bodily and organic nature, involves adaptive internal and external relations, and is distinguished from the rest of nature by not only sensing, but feeling. In one of the most notable theoretical moves in his early writing, Marx used the notion of sensuousness to distinguish his practical and political materialism from contemplative or philosophical materialism. Quote, The chief defect of all hitherto existing materialism, that of Feuerbach included, is that the thing, reality, sensuousness, is conceived only in the form of the object or of contemplation, but not as sensuous human activity, practice, not subjectively. Hence, in contradistinction to materialism, the active side was developed abstractly by idealism, which, of course, does not know real, sensuous activity as such. End quote. Marx had earlier clarified what he means by sensuousness in this way, quote, To be sensuous, i.e. to be real, is to be an object of sense, a sensuous object, and thus to have sensuous objects outside oneself, objects of one's sense perception. To be sensuous is to suffer, to be subjected to the actions of another. Man, as an objective sensuous being, is therefore a suffering being. And because he feels his suffering, laden, he is a passionate, leidenschaftlich being. Passion is man's essential power, vigorously striving to attain its object. Bertel Ullmann notes three moments of sensing for Marx perception, orientation, and appropriation. These point to the immediate relation to the body's environment, the triggering of associations and evaluations, and then the body's use of this experience. This latter aspect of appropriation includes, but is not limited to, the acting back into the world. It can also be an internal enjoyment or intellectual purpose. Ullman gives the example of a sunset, which may be appropriated both through painting the scene in response, or simply through the pleasure of seeing it. These three moments are not simply a linear progression, but play back upon each other. What we are open to perceive is guided by our prior patterns of orientation, and those patterns adapt to what we appropriate. For example, we build knowledge systems through learning new concepts and relating them to those previously learned, which guides our attention to different aspects of the world. All stages then evolve co-adaptation and reflection. This moment of orientation or evaluation is addressed in cognitive linguistics with notions like schemas and frames. These are networks of embodied knowledge, our episodic memories of events, the semantic relations between concepts like smoke linking to fire, and patterns of bodily or sensory motor movement like how to type or play the guitar. When we hear, read or think some concept, it does not invoke a dictionary definition, but triggers this encyclopedia of interconnected meaning. These are both personal, developed through our life experience, 
but can also synchronise across populations who experience the same events and cultural background, such as the way that the news media fosters widely held prejudices against immigrants, benefit claimants or LGBT people. As some cognitive scientists are fond of saying, the neurons that fire together wire together, meaning that repeated exposure to a particular representation is liable to naturalise it over time. We could also see this relating to more abstract schemas like the human, the self and the other, home and safety, nation or reality, thus shaping our very notions of the possible world. We can even consider the impact of ideology on our second order reflection upon those schemas, that is, whether we are taught to examine our prejudices and adapt them, or simply ignore and attack information which does not fit preconceived schemas. By seeing these structures and processes on a spectrum from fluid to rigid, we can get some further insight into the specifically capitalist shaping of the mind. A notion present in Marx, but developed in more detail by Lukács, is reification, or if you like, thingification. In reification, our dynamic world, with its fluidity, multiplicity and complexity, becomes perceived and shaped as thing-like, fixed, individual and simple. This is both a psychological phenomena and one of the organisation of society, the two reproducing one another as we act into the world and are guided by it. The production of commodities is key to the Marxist account of reification, through what we described in episode 2 as commodity fetishism, where the complex forces and social relations of production are collapsed into a simple object. For Alfred Sonn-Rathel, the emergence of money and exchange in itself is a source of reified consciousness, beginning even in the ancient world. In line with Sonn-Rathel, more recently Richard Seaford has argued that the appearance of systematic philosophy in both Greece and India around the same time can also be linked to their development of coinage and a market economy. He argues that the single substance of money or the universal equivalent, as Marx would put it, encouraged the development of monistic single-substance metaphysics, like that of Parmenides, and in notions like Brahman in the Upanishads. This seems to point to reification as a general socio-cognitive dynamic that can arise through a variety of means in disparate historical contexts, including but not limited to capitalism. It would seem to be in part related to the chunking tendencies of the mind, where both perception and memory break up the flow of sensation in order to categorise and evaluate it. To look more specifically at how contemporary capitalism shapes the mind, we can turn to the four E theories of cognition I touched upon in the previous episode. What these theories emphasise is that our minds are always embodied, are always learning through enacting, are always shaped by being embedded in prior sociocultural systems, and the minds extend beyond the body through tools and processes. But what is rarely commented on in those theories is how capitalist society actively distracts us from this nature of the mind. Marx discusses how, in various ways, capitalism alienates us from our bodies, from our humanity, from the products of our labour, and from our connections to one another. We could say, for example, that we are alienated in terms of embodied cognition by the division of mental from manual labour that produces a psychological division within our bodily image, we are alienated in extended cognition by our dispossession of the products of our collective labour, and thus from our ability to use and shape our environments with them. And we are alienated in embedded cognition by our inability to control and reconfigure the working spaces we inhabit. Beyond the traditional locus of the workplace, we might see an alienation of inactive cognition in the education system, 
where learning is contained with institutions that you enter into and exit out of at specific points rather than as an ongoing life process, but also in how education is directed towards shaping you as a worker rather than for self-directed purposes. The way that behaviour is controlled in the workplace and how this disrupts our emotive reasoning and expression could be thought of in terms of alienation of affective cognition. A lack of democracy and hierarchical information flow and how this cuts us off from processes of decision making in social bodies we are part of, whether in a workplace, a local community or our relation to the nation state, could be seen as alienation of distributed cognition. All of this in turn can help us to envisage an alternative to capitalism. Rather than asking from a negative position, what does unalienated being look like, we can instead look to a more specific affirmative goal. We aim for the awareness of, and practical access to, the fullness of our embodied cognition. The question then is what personal, intersubjective, institutional and wider social arrangements best produce and reproduce that state. It is not just a matter of changing minds, but also the changing of the world in which minds are entangled. As the inactive strand implies, simply learning about this on paper is not enough to spark revolutionary change. We could say that for truly transformative changes that one has to learn with the whole body. This would seem to put us on the side of Rosa Luxemburg, who saw active class struggle, such as workplace strikes, as a necessary precursor to class consciousness raising. The opposing view of Lenin's that it was only an intellectual vanguard who could provide class consciousness to workers is left a little problematic. But there is still something in the notion that becoming embedded in existing frameworks, cultivated in some institutional setting, can provide a means for channeling the energies of consciousness raising, even if the ruptural events that are the initial spark must come from direct experience. As embedded cognition implies, such revolutionary consciousness raising must be embedded in larger scale social bodies, like politically educated communities, revolutionary parties, or ecologies of activist organisations, if it has any hope of becoming permanent and hegemonic. A model of this unalienated being, or at least some of its facets, can be found in the notion of comradeship. For Jody Dean, comrade denotes a shared political project, a shared path, the path towards the communist horizon. It implies equality and solidarity, and is in itself utopian, in performing the kind of relation that one wants to see in the world. You do not, however, need to be friends with someone, or even like them, to be comrades, and indeed falling out need not translate into the end of comradeship, if the long-term political path is still shared. Unlike a term such as colleague, which can likewise describe a relation of equality and cooperation beyond friendship, comrade is also a performance of that relation, and helps to sustain it. To call someone comrade is an exclamation of commitment to the other, charged with positive affect. It implies, for Dean, discipline, joy, enthusiasm and courage. And as anyone can potentially become a comrade if they are committed to the shared political project, it has a universality which, far from remaining on the local scale, allows it to scale up to constitute a global collective identity. Zooming back out, Hopefully I have demonstrated that a process metaphysics utilising complex systems concepts can underlie a critique of capitalism. The broad elements of proletarianization, private ownership, commodity exchange and the accumulation cycle all involve power, process, relation and bodies, as well as the particular forms of organism and consciousness. Socialism is the struggle against this capitalist system and the presentation of an alternative. 
Socialism as an alternative is typically defined as something like the workers' control of the means of production or common ownership of the means of production. What this aims at, in short, is that the currently exploited and oppressed economic class would become the ones who organise production, rather than this being controlled by a separate class of owners. Looking at the four aspects of capitalism previously laid out, this simple definition of socialism as common ownership does not necessarily negate all aspects of capitalism, in fact only one, private ownership. Thus a form of market socialism based on cooperative businesses, such as was seen in Yugoslavia, would still operate with market distribution of commodities. State socialisms that control all production, but where the populace has no say in their operation, may arguably still be operating with a different form of private property, the state being the sole owner. In both cases, people may even remain proletarianized if conditions force them into work, and both could still develop an endless cycle of accumulation, even if through a different process. We may have escaped capitalism, but without negating all the problems that capitalism is associated with. The total negation of all aspects of capitalism is what I would consider full communism, a mode of production not yet seen in the modern world. This is not communism as a movement, or communism as the actually existing states that began in the 20th century, but communism as an end goal. Under full communism, waged work is replaced with what Marx called free activity, with time for the full development of the individual, along with the grasping of our own history as a process and the recognition of nature, equally present as practical power over nature, as our real body. Whilst Marx had demurred from being more specific than this about what communism would look like, an understanding of how systems tend to form and be sustained can be useful in creating directional visions, whilst still avoiding rigid blueprints. For example, full communism could not simply exist as an absence of organisation, but would still require a self-reproducing governance system that could sense and adapt to its environment, responding to ecological emergencies, resolving internal disputes, and so on. It should aim to foster multi-scalar power too, and cultivate the full possession of our embodied cognition, whilst recognising that tensions and failures will always arise in the process. And this new world need not be constructed entirely from scratch, but could involve a reorganisation of existing elements of the world in a process of exaptation. How we get to that endpoint is a different question. As I argued in the first episode, I feel a certain element is missing from existing leftist strategy that could be bridged through what I am calling spirituality. Accordingly, I will begin in the following three episodes to explore that materialist spirituality in more detail, extending from the same metaphysical principles of power, process, relation, body, organism and consciousness that I have argued here are consistent with Marxism. Before that episode, we do have a short break, but if all goes to plan, it should go out in about four weeks' time, on Wednesday the 16th of June. I hope you'll join me then for the second half of the series. See you there. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash on a life glug you can find me on twitter also at on a life glug and if you're interested in my previous work check out my book the shock doctrine of the left which is available from polity books <laughs>